Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is David Givens, a founding member of Zephyr, with his wife Candy Givens and a special guitarist named Tommy Bolin in the ranks. Zephyr was unchallenged as Colorado's greatest band in the nascent stages of what's now known as the classic rock era. Nice to have you here, David. Thanks. It's nice to be here, G. Zephyr's story is incredibly nuanced. You came up in the 60s, a decade that will never be duplicated. There are elements to be proud of. The music Zephyr made was undeniable, but there were elements to be sad about. Managerial hang-ups, some painful mistakes, and broken promises. Again, an incredibly nuanced story. Nuanced is nice, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty nuanced in itself right there. Right? <laughs> so let's start with your background. You're a Detroit boy from the Motor City. Yep. The Detroit scene wound up spawning a lot of great rock music and musicians. Did you interact with any of the principals in your teenage years? My girlfriend's father had a gas station down on Woodward Avenue, a couple blocks from Motown. The Four Tops and the Temptations used to get their cars fixed there. One of those guys was talking to her, and she hooked me up with a studio down there. I'd been playing bass for like all of maybe, I don't know, 10 months, and I was all ready to get down there and play some serious music. And I went in, and the guy said, okay, put your bass all on treble and play with a pick. And that was my first experience in a studio. So what were the circumstances of landing in Colorado? I had left Detroit because that was not going to be my future, my fate. I said, get out. I actually went into an automotive plant looking for a job when I got kicked out of school. Yeah. I walked in and I listened to the sound of the factory and I said, this is not for me, and left. I always thought, well, push come to shove, I can go and ski in Colorado. People in Detroit grow up fantasizing about skiing in Colorado, at least back in the 60s they did. Now they just go there. I moved to Laguna Beach and didn't like it and didn't know what to do. So I took my first plane ride and flew to Denver was originally going to go to Jackson Hole. I knew a guy who was a ski instructor there, but I didn't know geography very well, and I thought the mountains were to the north of Denver. So when I looked at the map, I said, well, Jackson Hole's in the wrong place, so I ended up going to Aspen via Aspen Airways on a DC-3, <laughs> which was pretty exciting. No doubt. So in Aspen, in the fall of 1967, you met Candy, known as Candy Ramey at the time. One of my roommates, Candace Van Dolsen, thought Candy was the greatest thing. You've got to see this girl singer. She was singing in a jug band. So Candace took me to the Abbey in Aspen. Candy was singing with the Piltdown Philharmonic jug band. She played washboard and harmonica. She was a badass washboard player. She had thimbles on her fingers, and they had built this thing and had tin pots and Clarabelle's horn and all this crazy stuff. And she'd do these little solo work. Candace introduced me to her after the show. We kind of flirted a little bit. I was working at the Red Onion as a busboy. The guy that owned the place was this ex-Nazi, actually. I did something that annoyed him. He said something sharp to me, so I quit, because I was 19. I wasn't listening to any of that stuff. And it was February of 1968. And I walked out into the street, and there was Candy standing on a corner looking for a ride home. She was living in Snowmass. So we went over to Pinocchio's and got something to eat. I borrowed my roommate's car. I drove her out to Snowmass, 
And we stayed together after that for many years. What were the circumstances of meeting Tommy Bolin? We met him at Galena Street East, which was a nightclub in Aspen. His band, American Standard, came up to play. In the afternoon, one of the guys in our band knew one of the guys in their band, and so he invited Candy and me to come down and jam with them where they were setting up. I didn't play, but Candy sat in, and it was nothing special, and none of us were like, hey, isn't this great? Just went, adios, and that was it. Later, when we moved to Boulder, we had a regular Wednesday night gig at the Buffer Room up on the hill. Kit Thomas and Marty Wolf, who were the guys who were putting on a lot of shows around Boulder at the time, the Balls for Peace and the Glenn Miller Ballroom stuff, they brought Tommy down to our gig. And Tommy used to like to go around and jam with every band in town. That was his thing. He just loved to jam. He sat in with us, and he and Candy really struck a chord, so to speak. They were trading licks and really just having a great time. And the crowd went wild. We arranged to get together after that and jam, see if we could put a band together, which we did. Yes, you did. You formed Zephyr. You took the name from the train operated by the Western Pacific Railroad. Well, Tommy and John had a band, and the name of their band was Ethereal Zephyr, and I think the derivation of that was some kind of heavenly west wind or something. That, <laughs> there were a lot of those names floating yeah, around exactly. back then. And Candy and I were like, no, 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 no heavenly stuff, come on. The train was a nice image, I thought. The Colorado Zephyr was a streamliner. It was probably built in the late 40s, I think. Stainless steel, really luxurious accommodations. I had the little bubble roof on the car so you could admire the mountains as you drove down next to the Colorado River and all that groovy stuff. I think the thing is in a museum in Chicago now. We used to see it going across Utah, where it would be long, flat stretches of desert, and it'd be this really great Art Deco train doing about 85 across the desert as we were driving down the highway. It was really an impressive thing. It was kind of yellow and red and silver, Mm -hmm. as I recall. Zephyr was comprised of you, Candy and Tommy, with Robbie Chamberlain, a powerful drummer, and John Ferris on keyboards, a wonderful, knowledgeable player. Yeah, he was the best musician Well, I don't know. Robbie was really very accomplished as well. For being 18, Robbie could hang with pretty much anybody around. The whole band was like that except me, you know? (laughs) All right. You had two assets in Candy and Tommy. Candy was a pioneer, an exceptional harmonica player, a singer of great range who could sell the blues, a charismatic performer. She had to endure comparisons to Janis Joplin, but Candy was a pioneer. It seems quaint now, but the idea of a woman fronting a band of rock dudes was mostly unheard of. There were no others. Grace Slick and the Airplane had a more folk-based background, and Grace was really great, and I'm not taking anything away from her. But Candy was a really good musician. She played harp like a man. Please take that in the context of 1968. She loved Little Walters. She learned how to play the harp by walking around Aspen playing the harp. She loved it. years here, she played with Willie Dixon, James Cotton, and John Lee Hooker, a lot of old blues guys, and they loved her. Willie Dixon, every time he saw her, he was like, Andy, come on up here, you know, little skinny white girl, could play, and could sing. Judy Rudin, who is a harmonica playing woman from 
Boulder from back in those days. And I had a conversation about it once, and she said that Candy was her inspiration and probably the inspiration for a lot of women who play harmonica now. I knew Big Mama Thornton and played with her a little bit, and she played harmonica, but she played a lot more country style. She didn't play that Chicago jazzy sound. So as far as I know, Candy was it. And she was good on stage. People watched her. And you had Tommy Bolin as he developed into one of the great guitarists of the era, not just in Colorado, but the entire scene. The speed and precision of his guitar work was extraordinary. Uh, but to say that he would have been the next Eric Clapton is the usual apples-to-oranges BS. What always astounded me was that Tommy could play anything, electric or acoustic, hard rock griffs or jazz fusion improvisation. And it was by ear, right? He couldn't read music, but if you hummed it to him, he could play it. He spoke the language of music. He was not an educated person by any stretch of the imagination. He took a few music lessons when he was a kid, but basically, if he could hear it, and John Ferris taught him a lot of stuff. Tommy used to inquire frequently about, hey, what about this chord, you know? How does that 13th, 11th sharp nine work? And John would show him. Tommy incorporated it. <laughs> practiced playing the guitar in front of the television, playing along to the background music on TV shows and advertising. He would play to anything. It was really funny. I would do stuff like take him in music stores in New York just to watch people's faces when he would pick up a guitar and start playing. I loved that. Manny's Music it was a famous music store. I took him in there one day. He picked up an acoustic guitar and sat down next to the guitar racks and started playing. And it's New York, and they're all musicians, and they're kind of somewhat blasé about stuff. Nobody was blasé about that. The whole store, everybody in the store came and stood around. Then Tommy kind of looked up and went, oh, put down the guitar and walked away. And people were just like, what was that? You crafted a unique sound for the time. There was the climate of great hard rocking sounds from Hendrix to the Stones the discovery of the old blues masters by the rock generation, and the spontaneity of jazz. That was really our goal. When we first started talking about playing together, John and Tommy both were like, well, we really want to play jazz. We don't want to be commercial. That was the other thing. Tommy was more than anybody, which is funny and ironic, more than anybody, he was like, no, commercial is not for me. He really wanted to be known as an instrumentalist of the first order. We kind of got some of that. was the gateway to the Rockies for a lot of people. There were still some rough edges, uh, but like the music was developing, so was the music business. In Colorado, there weren't any connections or infrastructure at the time. The only person with music industry contacts was the concert promoter in town, Barry Fay. 
Faye was new to the business as well and went on to become a notorious and controversial figure. We can talk about that. But as it applied to Zephyr, the upside was that he could get you gigs around town, not just in bars, but in theaters and ballrooms. Tommy knew Barry from the family dog. Barry really wasn't doing much for him. He wasn't doing anything for him, as a matter of fact. Kit Thomas and Marty Wolf took us down to audition for Barry at a club in Denver called The Shapes. Barry listened to us. We played our three hits, you know. And Barry was like, well, Tommy, you really got something now. This is great. I'm going to help you. I don't know what the alternative would have been. Well, no. Even the fact that he could get you gigs was suspect. Uh, you didn't play as much as you could have around town because he decided that he didn't want to overexpose you. That was the word. Overexpose. We don't want to do that. We didn't really know each other. We knew each other from seeing each other play. And then we all moved into the same house for a few months. And we got to know each other better. And then we traveled together and we got to know each other better. But we never had that six-night-a-week, five-night-a-week experience. But you did raise the roof in Boulder and Denver venues as a live act. Uh, it was the hippie era, so you also got to play gigs to raise money for the spay clinic. <laughs> but you didn't have any recording experience, and Faye had no idea how the record business worked, how labels operated, publicity, and so on. Not a clue. He knew that he could call and get us a gig at the Avalon, which is the first place we played outside of Colorado. He knew that he had connections in Phoenix. We went down and stayed in Phoenix for a month in April of 1969 and played in the local venue. The first time we walked in there, Steve Miller was sitting in the dressing room drinking a beer. We were hippies from Colorado, and we thought, oh, my God, Steve Miller, are you serious? Wow, and he looked at us sort of like, what? <laughs> Children of the Future, Steve Miller Band. We loved that record. So when we saw him, we expected he was going to be this celestial figure, you know, and he wasn't. <laughs> he gave Candy some of the best advice ever. He said, sing, stop screaming, just sing. You got a nice voice. Dear God, hear me once It took her a while for that to penetrate, but I understand. She was singing in front of the loudest band, as loud as we could get. <laughs> PA systems in those days, they had something to be desired. Sketchy. Yeah, sketchy, yeah, sketchy's right. What she was hearing was this little teeny voice screaming in the ether, and people out in front sometimes were hearing something else. And the first record we made was kind of like that. She did a lot of takes. 30, 40 takes of some of those vocals. And so some of them are not as good as what she was, which I think is why a lot of people said, oh, you guys should have made a live record. Well, of course, in those days, you couldn't make a live record unless the record company said you could, and you had to earn the right to have a live record. You know, it's like a greatest hits record. You have a few hits, and then you have a greatest hits record, and then you do a live album, and that was kind of how they did it. Had we done a live record, we would have probably been a lot better off. Zephyr was the name of the first album, known as the Rainbow in the Bathtub album because of the cover. It was recorded in two days, and you got paired with a producer, Bill Halverson, who wasn't a good match to capture your sound. Didn't like it in the aftermath. I said, what did you think you were getting? Why did you do this? He said, well, I thought you guys were going to be another Cream. He had worked with Cream, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. 
He worked with Tom Jones and a lot of L.A. people. He worked with the Wrecking Crew guys all the time. But what we did was a far cry. He thought Jimi Hendrix was awful. He hated Jimi Hendrix. (laughs) He didn't tell us that, you know. (laughs) The record was plagued by a bad mix, but the songs were undeniable. St. James Infirmary, one of my favorites, had some haunting, some would say foreshadowing lyrics. Yeah, I always liked that arrangement. We just threw that together. We didn't even know the song, really. And John Ferris said, oh, well, let's do St. James Infirmary. Well, how does it go? Well, I'm not sure. I think it goes something like this. So we put some dynamic changes in it and some tempo changes and stuff, and it turned out really well. The recording is not my favorite because the original demo that we did was, I think, better than that. And a lot of the live shows, Tommy and Candy, when they were really clicking past the torch back and forth, it was a really interesting and emotional event. People loved it. Arguably, Candy's greatest moment as a performer was at the first and only Denver Pop Festival in the summer of 1969. The event was phase shot at the big time. Woodstock didn't happen until three months later. Uh, This was a time for drawing hard lines. Civil rights demonstrations and anti-war protests and student strikes were loose in the land. In the afternoon of the second day of the three-day festival, the event changed from a musical episode to a panic. Tear gas that was intended for the gate crashers outside Mile High Stadium swept over the West Stands inside, which blinded and gagged many of the 21,000 fans inside, listening to Zephyr. Violence erupted in the audience. The police moved in with clubs and more tear gas. Yeah, we were right in the middle of a song. When the gas got to the stage and I had my eyes closed, I thought I was having a heart attack or something. I had no idea what this was. And then I opened my eyes, and the people were just pouring down out of the stands. Candy really saved the day. The rest of us were just, like, kind of shocked. And she just stepped up and said, okay, come on, calm down. It's cool. We're all right. Come on down on the field. Sit down. And she said, well, since we're already crying, let's do some blues. And we did St. James Infirmary. I went down to the St. James In Barry Fay's book, he has the nerve to say that he and Chipmunk calmed the crowd. Doesn't mention Candy once, you know? Typical. Yeah, I know. Very typical. Hard Charging Woman was more than a song title. It summed up Candy's demeanor. There was an R. Crumb comic, and there was a character in it called White Man, right? One of the things that he would say when he was going around town was, I'm a real hard charger. Ferris had that, you know, that original theme. We arranged the rest of the thing around it. And then Candy and our roommate, Frank Anton, were in the other room writing lyrics to this thing at the same time. And somehow that I'm a real hard charger got got in there. Because the music is boisterous, I I guess. I don't know, some kind of word. I love doing that. It was our closer. And we'd end the show. John would start, and he'd be like real quiet on the organ. He'd be da, da. And then Tommy and Robbie and I would come in with just this giant two-chord thing. And the crowd, invariably, I swear to God, this was one of those magic tricks. The crowd always went off on that. Then, of course, the hard-charging woman came in. Oh, 
that was your set closer, but your set opener was equally compelling, Cross the River. I was just listening to a recording of that from 1971. It was one of our last gigs together before we broke up from San Bernardino. I sat out in the dressing room with Jimmy Carl Black, the Indian in the group, of Frank Zappa's band. We were smoking some pot that he had. It was African pot. And he goes, you're going to really like this. So I got kind of stoned, and I really didn't remember the gig that well. I had a tape of it for years that I never listened to. Greg Hampton, who's the producer that's been responsible for getting distribution deals for the Zephyr albums in the remastered form in the last couple of years, he digitized it and listened to it. He goes, man, you really need to listen to this. It was really tight, really, really good across the river. Everybody was on. Candy was singing really nice, singing good, interesting melodies, and it was really, really very cool. From Boulder, Colorado, let's welcome Zephyr. We love you! We opened a show for Led Zeppelin in Boston at the Boston Tea Party, and that was like their second tour, I think. They had gone across the country. They'd just come back from Hawaii. I remember that because one of our roadies stole Robert Plant's Hawaii T-shirt, and I made him go give it back. <laughs> I like these guys because we finished our set, went into the upstairs dressing room, whatever it was, and the Boston Tea Party had been a synagogue in a beautiful old building, right? And the dressing room was this kind of elegant room, dirty but faded glory. And Jimmy Page and Robert Plant came bursting in. Jimmy Page comes running up to me and he goes, are you the guitar player? And just for a moment I thought, I think I should say yes. <laughs> but I didn't. I said, no, that's the little fella over there with the black hair. And so he ran over there and, and then Candy and, and Robert and I sat and talked for quite a while. And these were some of our heroes. We loved Led Zeppelin's first record and their second record. We were big fans and so that was very cool. Zephyr recorded its second album, Going Back to Colorado, in late 1970. It was released a few months later. You used Eddie Kramer as producer and engineer. Eddie had worked with Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. Yeah, Jimmy Page is the one who turned me on to Eddie Kramer. He said, you got to go talk to this guy, this guy's Hendrix's guy. And again, the circumstances weren't ideal. Well, you know, everything was going really well until Jimmy died. The stars, when Zephyr was formed, were making some kind of really ugly sign in the heavens, fire raining down. We couldn't win. At a certain point, when something bad could happen, it would happen. We got invited to play at Woodstock, and Barry said, ah, it's not going to be, it's going to, don't, nah, you know. He <laughs> went. Oh, of course. Yeah, but we didn't. Now, after being in business for years and years, and I worked in the automotive industry for almost 20 years in software. I did a lot of real business long after my musician days were over. Had it been me, I think I would have said, okay, you guys, we've got a crisis here, and we're going to handle our crisis, and you guys go home and come back when we can focus on what you're doing. But that's not what happened. What happened was the record company wanted an album. Carly Simon was making her first album in the same studio, and she had priority over us because she and Eddie were having a little romance. And then Mitch Mitchell and Eddie were trying to assemble Hendrix's album from the pieces that they had. It mm -hmm. wasn't complete. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, we're on the bottom of the bill. 
You gigged and played some noted rock emporiums over the years, such as the Fillmore East, uh, the original Fillmore, the Whiskey A Go-Go. You opened for Hendrix, Zeppelin, Mountain, Fleetwood Mac. But was that experience sort of the beginning of the end for the original Zephyr? Robbie and Tommy in particular didn't get along very well for a variety of reasons, both personal and professional. And so Bobby Berge came in from South Dakota, who Tommy knew from the past. He was a great drummer. He's still a great drummer today. But it was a different flavor. Robbie was a jazz guy, but John Bonham was one of his models as well. And so he could sound like Elvin Jones and John Bonham or Mitch Mitchell or whatever, all in the same song if it was required. And we've required of that kind of stuff fairly frequently. The band broke up, actually, when I told Tommy that John and Candy and I wanted Robbie back. And Tommy was like, well, no, I want to keep Bobby. And we said, well, we don't. And he said, well, then I guess I got to go. And I said, well, we really don't want you to go. And he said, well, I really don't want to go, but I don't like Robbie and I'm not playing with him. <laughs> That's what he said. So that was that. Yeah. Tommy and Bobby Berge formed a band called Energy. You recruited some new players, notably guitarist Jock Barkley, who would later form Firefall. And you made the Sunset Ride album. Brothers really liked it. All the signs were good, but we didn't have a good booking agency with us at that time. We went on a little tour, our one and only tour. First of all, we wanted to be the Bees. We didn't want to be Zephyr because we felt that Zephyr was Tommy and the original lineup. Warner said, no, you're known as Zephyr and you're going to be Zephyr. Okay. <laughs> we tried. Really liked making that record. Those guys, Jock Barley, Michael Wooten, who played with Leftover Salmon and Carol King for a long time. Danny Smith, who was a keyboard player from the Galaxies. They had a band and they were playing around in Denver and Candy and I went musician shopping and we found these guys and said, wanna come to Boulder and you know, make records? And, and they were like, well, okay. Better than working at the dive on Wadsworth. But we worked really hard on that record. About three solid months, pretty much five, six days a week, five, six hours a day. We worked it out to the hill.
After the Sunset Ride album, Zephyr was over. Shortly thereafter, you and Candy and Tommy formed the legendary Fornicators with Harold Fielden and Mick Manressa from Flash Cadillac. You were all looking to reconnect with the joy of making music without the industry BS. You headquartered at Arts Barn Grill in North Boulder, playing covers of oldies every Monday night. And you packed the place, making more money than you ever had with Zephyr. It was really fun. I think there was a small baby boom nine months after that. <laughs> There's a lot of rocking vehicles uh, in yeah, the parking yeah. lot. Yeah. Tommy, when he left Boulder to go join the James Gang, left right after his last Fornicator gig. We had a great time because it was completely not serious. We did it just to poke a finger in our eye of the music business because none of us had a really great experience. I mean, playing for people was always wonderful. And traveling around the country and meeting people, that was terrific. But doing shows where the headliners didn't even want to go on after our show, over and over and over, and our management never figured out a way to take advantage of that. And I found out that one of the top agents at the William Morris Agency had been trying to find us, and by the time he did find us, Candy and I had said, we're done, we're retiring. <laughs> now, how somebody who's doing business with Feline couldn't find us for months, it's mind-boggling. So I think it's just another part of that fate. The fates are weaving, and it wasn't in the yarn. So that was that. Yeah. For better or worse, drug and alcohol use was a factor in musical circles then. For most everybody of that era, there were no societal checks and balances in those days, uh, rehab programs, or even people dedicated to looking out for artists on that level. Candy and Tommy both had issues. After leaving the fornicators for the James Gang and the commensurate paycheck, Tommy played with Deep Purple and also launched a solo career. After his band played support at a Jeff Beck concert, he collapsed and died in the bathroom of a Miami Beach hotel. He was 25, his body ravaged by drugs and drinking. When was the last time you saw Tommy? We were at the Good Earth in Boulder. He was in town, hadn't been around for quite a while. He came in pretty early when he wasn't high yet. We sat down and had a really nice conversation. You know, he was telling us what he had just recently been through, which was his Deep Purple experience, and trying to make a record with them. And he had really had to take a position and say, this is where I want to go with the music. You know, he had some opposition in the band. When we were together in Zephyr, there was some tension about that kind of thing because Candy and I really did have a vision. Tommy, his vision was to be a guitar hero more than it was to make a particular kind of music. So he felt that Candy and I were being bossy. He didn't like that. And we thought that he was not putting forth enough effort, and we didn't like that. So there was a, this sort of tension. And that conversation actually resolved that. He said, you know, I, I really get where you guys were coming from. I had to do the same thing. All you really wanted to do was to do the right thing. Zephyr had one last hurrah. You and Candy made an album in 1981 titled Heartbeat with some new players. Eddie Turner. Eddie was a pretty good songwriter. He was really liking to this whole new wave thing, but he also really could play the guitar. He was playing country music, which he was very good at when we got him, and I had to really work on him to stretch out and play jazz and blues and stuff. Candy was incredibly smart 
incredibly talented and incredibly capable of partying with the best of them. She could hold her own. She passed away in 1984. She drowned in her hot tub after overdosing on quaaludes and alcohol. She was always dogged by comparisons to Janis Joplin, which was typically facile. Yes, she was female and feisty and sang hard at times, but she was unique. Uh, now you've been busy tending to Zephyr's musical legacy, overseeing reissues of the albums, unearthing archival footage, and so on. I'm really doing my very best to do that. I really have some nice material to work with, and in their original incarnations, her voice wasn't properly positioned in the mix. As I've learned to do this stuff over the years, I've come to appreciate how delicate that balance is to get it just right. I listen now and I'll listen to Beatles records or some of Hendrix's stuff or a million others, the Stones, you can, you can name whoever you want, Donovan for that matter. Those guys who made those records really got it, got it right, the technical guys and the people in the band. Well, Billie Holiday in her book, said the first thing she did when she walked into a studio was go make friends with the guy that was turning the dials. Because, you know, in her day, they were going straight to a disc. They were cutting it right there. When they said cutting a record, they weren't kidding. They were cutting it. She knew that if you get the voice in just the right spot, then people that are not musicians who listen differently, they have different brains. Their brain doesn't work like musicians' brains do. When they hear music, they hear something entirely different than what we do. So getting that just right is difficult. There's a translation thing that goes on. And once you learn to recognize what it's supposed to do, it gets a lot easier. Robbie Chamberlain and John Ferris both passed away in recent years. You're the last man standing from the original Zephyr. Please detail your work. What's available for the fan who wants to investigate Zephyr's musical legacy? Some archival video has surfaced. It's the only video that I know of that captures the majority of one of our sets from when we were in our first incarnation. Robbie's playing drums, Tommy's playing guitar, Candy and John and I are doing our stuff. What happened was, is a guy who was a friend of Andy Warhol's. Sony had just come out with a portable video recorder and you could hang it around your shoulder. It was kind of a big white box and there was a camera attached to it and you could shoot mono sound video. This guy was friends with the sound man at the Fillmore and they used to let him in the back door and then they would give him the feed from the board and plug it into the recorder so that he'd have some kind of sound. Fillmore was an old theater, right? It was an old Yiddish theater. There were box seats, like where Abraham Lincoln was sitting when they shot him. They had those kind of seats up next to the stage. And he would go up there and shoot bands. Neil Young and Jimi Hendrix and whoever was anybody, Van Morrison, I've heard. There's supposedly tens, if not maybe over a hundred, shows that he shot, and they're all bootlegs. Wyndham Hannaway of Hannaway and Associates. Let's throw some love Wyndham's way. That's this right. Wyndham got the job of going through this archive. He knew the family, the guy and his wife who were the bootleggers. I believe the story goes they donated this trove of archives of these bands from that era to CU. Wyndham got the job of going through and cataloging all of it. He was looking through the catalog and he goes, I know those guys. That's Zephyr. So he showed it to somebody and then somebody told me, that was you. Once I knew... <laughs> I called Wyndham. I said, well, I'd like to use that stuff, see if it's okay with them. And they were really cool. They said, oh, they're in the band? Well, they can do whatever they want. Fine, no problem. So we took it. Greg Hampton and his crew in L.A. took the audio and stripped it out and remastered that. And I sent the video to a friend of mine in New Zealand who's a really good video and graphics kind of guy. And he took the very fuzzy, cloudy video 
and enhanced it enough so that you can read. I was wearing a Fillmore basketball jersey, and in the original version, you couldn't read Fillmore on it. And when he got done, you could read it. So you can see people's faces, you can see people's hands. So it's really cool. It's a little raggedy because this was our first night in New York, and we were having a problem with our manager. We were switching managers. Barry was our personal manager. These guys were business managers, and Barry didn't like the business manager that we had, who was Soupy Sales's business manager. So why we had him in the first place, I have no idea. <laughs> we got up into our dressing room. We were just about to go on. 15, 20 minutes away, and this guy walks in with a hat and an overcoat and a briefcase. And he asked us who we were, and we told him, and he opened up the briefcase and served us all. We were being sued for a million and a half dollars apiece. Now, a million and a half dollars is not that much money, but when you're 20 years old and you've never had more than like $200 in your life, and so we thought we were dead meat, or at least we were in for it, some problems. The Fillmore people had left a magnum of champagne in our dressing room, so we drank it right before we went on. <laughs> so the, the performance is a little loose. So that's it, yeah. That video is it. We were on American Bandstand, but all of the hundreds of years of American Bandstand, they've lost, like, I don't know, 10 shows. Well, ours was one of them. <laughs> Returning to the theme. Tell me a musician's joke. Little girl walks into the kitchen... She says, Mom, I was just watching TV, and I saw this band, and they were playing this music. It was great, and the girl that was singing was super cool, and I've decided that I want to be a musician when I grow up. And Mom looks at the daughter and says, Well, honey, you realize you can't do both. <laughs> Thank you, David. Thank you, G. Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O music.org. <laughs>